Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today, I am joined by Casey Cromble, one of David McClay Kidd's lead associates. If you haven't yet, please rate and review the podcast in iTunes. And without further ado, here's Casey. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. What do you think the biggest myth in golf architecture is? Um, I would say that, you know, our predecessors were somehow much more talented than the current group of architects. And by predecessors, you mean which? The, any architects choosing the golden age architects. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a myth that they were so incredibly amazing that we should go back and do everything that they were doing. And I just don't think that's true. Most industries evolve, but do you think that the best courses in the world are the old courses, like the, say, some rankings would show? I would say for the most part, because they got the very best sites and they had no constraints. They had no environmental constraints. They had no... No one over their shoulder. They had no housing projects. So they got the very best sites in the world, like Cypress Point, for example. And that's, you know, they, it shows because they're some of the greatest golf courses. But if you gave, you know, any, I would say, you know, any of my, the group of architects in, in our group, I would say, David Kidd, Tom Doak, Gil Hans, you give any of these guys that site, I would argue that they would do a better job. It's, it's interesting because a lot of times people will say, well, I, I don't know if I'd come up with this. But not necessarily they wouldn't come up with that, but they would come up with maybe something differently. I agree. They'd come up with a better 18th hole for Cypress Point. <laughs> They'd come up with a better first hole for Cypress Point. I think the 18th hole at a golf course is overrated. Yeah, I, I, there's certainly a lot of golf courses, especially in the British Isles, where you're playing back inland from the 18th hole, and it's sort of the crescendo of the of the tail that you you know you just it kind of lets you down and gets you back home. And you know, I would say the you know Cypress that's 18 is certainly a letdown. I think about the great. I think great golf courses mirror great songs. And I don't know any great song that ends with the loudest part of the song. I would agree. You know, so I think where that crescendo is, like, is hidden 14, 15, 16, maybe even 17, but then 18. And I, I think that's a, but different styles is so key. Variety. Yeah, I mean, I, I built we built a golf course in Nicaragua, and the 18th hole is a par three right out onto the beach, and it's fantastic. You know, I, I don't I don't know that it, that that it's 
that it would have been better if it was the 17th hole, you know, particularly. So I, I think, you know, variety is probably the biggest and most important thing that not one shoe fits every foot. You know, there's every golf course is different and, and the good ones are amazing for their own merits and they're being, you know, very different merits for each, each amazing, you know, course that you love. How'd you get into golf course architecture? Um, I was in college and just started, I started working on a local golf course construction project because I wanted to stay in Northern Arizona, which is where I went to school for the summer. Um, so my friend was, you know, helping build a golf course down the street called Forest Highlands and, uh, for Tom Weisskopf and I, you know, I went out there as a laborer with a shovel in my hand and, uh, I did that for probably five months maybe. And then went away to Mexico for, uh, after I graduated to do some, some studying in Spanish and spent a year there going to school and came back and didn't really have a plan. So I, you know, went back to this construction company. I was like, Hey, that, you know, that was pretty fun. Let's, you know, call them and see if I can get a job with them. So, uh, that was a company called Wadsworth and they put me to work right away. They were busy. It was, you know, 1999 things were cranking. Mm-hmm. So I spent, I wasn't a real, you know, enthusiast about architecture at that time. I just liked being out in the woods and, you know, being out on construction projects. And so quickly with Wadsworth, within a couple of years, I was a project manager running, you know, big projects for some of the best architects in the world. So I was working with Fazio and Nicholas and, you know, all these guys and, I slowly got more and more into architecture, spent more and more time with these architects as I kind of got more and more and more into the high profile, you know, projects. And I really started falling in love with the process. And I didn't know anything about the golden age of architecture. I didn't know anything about, you know, these old golf courses that were built in the twenties, but I loved being part of the, the, you know, the process of, taking bare land and creating these amazing things. But what I kept finding out was that these architects just weren't there. They weren't present. Mm-hmm. They'd draw a set of plans, they'd give them to the contractor. We'd, you know, do our best to build what they drew, not what fit in the land, not what, you know, not what should have been built, not something amazing, something that was on a piece of paper. And I really found it kind of boring. And, you know, I tried to improvise as much as I could in building what these architects had drawn, but then they'd come out and they'd, you know, Hey, this was, you know, this bump's supposed to be two inches higher. You know, there, there was always, they were always kind of trying to stifle the imagination of me and the, the team I was working with. So eventually I met David uh, on when we were building Tethero, I went to Oregon to, to build it as the contractor and he was the, architect. So, um, David was the first guy I met that was an improviser. You know, the, the plans, we basically just threw them out the window. They didn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a rough routing. We stuck to that routing and, and basically him and I, he didn't have an associate or anybody involved. He moved to Ben. And suddenly I realized that there's a guy that, you know, an architect that's so willing to 
spend his time on the site that it, you know, it, it made everybody on the whole project much more enthused. Mm-hmm. And he wanted us to use our imagination and build. He's like, try it, build it, you know, build whatever you want. And let's, I'll come back and look at it. And, and then we tweak it, you know, so he kind of took me under his wing uh, and really started to kind of hone my craft of architecture. And I worked for, you know, I worked for probably 20 different architects as a contractor. So I saw all different manners and ways, but what I never saw was someone that was on site all the time. And he was there all the time. He moved to Oregon. Outside of just the imagination and, and being able to improvise, what was the kind of the biggest aha moment that you had early on with David? I think it was just, you know, when he, it, it was very simple. It was just what I said when he said to me, yeah, I just moved here with my family. And it was day one of the project. He had rented a house and moved there. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, I just moved here. We're going to build this together. I was like, no, 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 I'm the contractor. He goes, yeah, and I'm the architect, and I'm going to be here more or less every day. And uh, he was there a lot. You know, he still was, he had another project in the UK, so he was going back and forth from the UK quite a bit. But um, him and I, you know, that was the first aha moment. And then from then on, it was just, you know, it was fun. It was exciting. It was, uh, you know, it was very different from what I had seen the past, the 10 years previous to that. It's a, it's so much more inclusive as opposed to like, you probably felt like almost detached. Absolutely. They were, you know, when I was the contractor, the architect was almost sort of the enemy. Like you were waiting for them to show up because they're just going to change everything that you already did. Or, you know, they're going to blow in, give a bunch of comments and blow out of town and that's it. And it was, you know, it was, uh, Everyone got inspired by David being on site. My whole team, guys I worked with, you know, for 10 years that had never seen that kind of thing. And suddenly we were, you know, having beers after work and with the architect and he's sitting on the tailgate with us. And, you know, it was really, really inspiring. And it, it really, that, that moment was when I said, this is awesome. I never wanted to be a golf course architect until I met David. So I'm like, that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to build the golf course, but I also want to design it. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's where I am today. It's, it's interesting because you were a golf course builder. You know, you built golf courses, but becoming, you know, part of the team that designed it, that that's a seismic shift. And I think it's, will contractors, you know, the design contract model, do you think, do you foresee that being, a relevant model 10 years from now? Only for some. I I don't think that most people in our industry are willing to sacrifice their lifestyle to be on a golf course all the time. I mean, our team, I was here at Sand Valley virtually every day of construction. David was here probably half the time. Nick, our other associate, he moved to, to L.A. to build a golf course, Rolling Hills. He spent two years there away from his family. Um, you know, I've moved around with my family a lot. It takes a lot of, you know, a lot of time and energy to, to, to really do the design build, you know, thing. And so I, 
you know, I don't, I don't foresee that it's going to be a huge thing for, for our industry because I don't, I don't, I don't know that people are as committed as they should, as they need to be for that model. Right. I was down at Trinity Forest and I, all these volunteers were, you know, I'd walk and they'd you'd stop and you'd talk and they'd, what do you think about the golf course? And I'd be like, oh, it's great. It'd be really, you know, like this sh- state of shock because it's so much different than everything else in Dallas. Sure. And the analogy I started to use was like, well, like most of your courses around here are, you know, the architect grew up plans, handed them over to contractor who built them out. Like they're kind of like a, like a subdivision house. And this is like a, a handcrafted house, you know, that somebody was here, that architect was on site all uh, a lot of the time, but everything, every little detail was thought out. And I felt like that kind of analogy clicked with them, like the handcrafted model, like it takes way more time, way more effort, but the end result is all the details are right. And, you know, that's why the best golf courses, modern day golf courses are being built by the guys that spend the most time on site, you know, Tom Doak, you know, Brian Slonick, his guy moves to Tar, moves to New Zealand to build Tar and Brian's been all over the place. You know, Bill Coor was up here at Sand Valley. You know, he basically came up here with his wife and camped out in one of the houses and, you know, sat on a sand pro every day. It's, it's, you know, Gil Hans is on the bulldozer, you know, moves to Brazil. I mean, the, the, the guys that are in our group are on site. It's funny because Donald Ross, like some of his best greens are the ones that are closest to his house at Pinehurst and closest to his house at Essex. Yeah. And, you know, that, that shows a lot, you know, because there's plenty of other ones that were mailed in, right? There's plenty of golf courses that where the architect is detached from the construction process. Mm-hmm. And when that happens then the motives are totally different for the people building it. When I was a contractor, I had very different motives than I do as an architect. Mm-hmm. And my motives all weren't always, you know, to spend, to reshape a green 12 times because you can't get it right. And that happens all the time now, you know, yeah, we're, we're reshaping and tweaking all the time <laughs> until the very last minute, till the seed goes down. And uh, it just wasn't the same as a, as a contractor. So uh, there's plenty of great contractors out there and they build good golf courses and there's plenty of great architects. You know, that model isn't producing a lot of top 100 in the world golf courses. So of the architects you worked with, with a contractor, like I, you know, I'm hard on a lot of architects and from that general era, like what are some things that I might be overlooking? as to what they did well i think the the probably the group that gets the the least love in the you know in the golf architecture world is is tom fazio and and what you know what tom produced and reproduced over and over on a lot a lot of golf courses and the biggest thing is playability he produced or designed really playable golf courses mm-hmm. all over the country. He didn't do a lot 
around the world because we didn't really want to work, didn't need to work outside the U.S. But um, you know the the Fazio guys in that era were probably as committed as anyone today. I worked on a project in Mexico and they had two full-time, you know, design associates there all the time. And they were, they were committed. The problem that they always had was that there was too many tiers there. You know, they had a boss and then they had a boss and then Tom was there, you know, he wasn't there enough and he would come in and make pretty large decisions, but they were very committed. And I think they, they, they built a lot of really playable golf courses. And, you know, that's obviously something that David and I are, are trying to push and, and, you know, is, is core in our design ethos is, is playability. That's a, the thing with Vazio courses. There's always like big corridor space. I think where he missed was like, just make a fairway. Like it just was so much long rough. Yeah. And like, if you just, you look at these places, like you never go there. Most Vazio courses are never like, offensive ever and they're never i mean there's some really good ones that you know they're they're good they're really really solid yeah but they they never they never inspire you like i think something i look at with golf like at a very core level like the really great golf courses like you start to get sad at the end of the round because you know it's coming to the end for sure and i think that that's where you're having so much fun you know, and golf's supposed to be fun. It's tell me about David. You guys have undergone kind of almost like a re transformation back to, you know, the fun principles. Tell me about the journey and kind of the change in the ethos over the last five, six years. You know, I, my, it's a, you know, that's a great question because I, I, I don't think it was, it was like a blink of time when there was particularly two courses, Tethero and the castle course that were being built kind of simultaneously. And when I met David, he said, Hey, I got to take you over to Scotland right at the beginning of, of construction at, at Tethero. And he's like, let's go. We're going to Scotland. So we flew over to Scotland. He showed the castle course. It was, there was a few holes that had been grassed, I think. And, and he, he, you know, he, he showed showed me how awesome it was. I loved it. I walked it. I, you know, went to the old course. We spent some time in St. Andrews. And I really got to kind of see what he was doing at the castle. And so when I went back to Tethero, we kind of tried to emulate that. And one of the shapers actually from the castle course, Mick McChain, he came to Tethero as well. And he, what a name. Yeah, Mick McChain. <laughs> Amazing guy, amazing guy. Um, and so Tethero and the Castle Course are are like twin brothers almost. There, there's you know there's the there's you know fringy areas in the middle of fairways, and there's you know wild greens, and you know neither of the golf courses were on sand, so they're they're, they're very similar. You know, they're, they're twin brothers. And, and that's, I was almost trying to build what I thought David wanted. And really it's those two courses that sort of, you know, got us, David, maybe a reputation of building things that are maybe a little too difficult. I think they're both fantastic courses. And if they were a hundred years old, I think both of the courses would be highly revered, you know, new courses that are 
bold. You know, don't don't usually. So I, I, I haven't played it either, but one of the things I think is that different isn't always bad. Like I, I think, especially with today's like era with social media, there's like a, a there's a potential for everything to become the same because of, you know, like, Hey, this works here. So let's keep doing it here and here and here. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you went over to the castle course inside and that's your first job with yeah. your new boss and you come back. It's like, this must be, how hard is it to build new stuff? Like, and new idea and constantly come up with new ideas. It's hard. I mean, and it's, it's, you know, I think with Tether on the castle, you know, he was trying to build, David was trying to build both of them at the same time. He had me building Tether and he had another guy named Paul Kimber building the castle. And what neither of us did was show restraint. You know, neither of us, I was pushing the gas pedal as hard as I could. And, you know, Paul was doing the same, uh, in, in Scotland. And I think, you know, we were trying to do something super different, right? I, I had no one telling me, no, everyone was, you know, it was yes, yes, yes. And David, you know, for whatever, I think for a blink of time, he maybe just lost a little bit of focus on, on both of those projects and let me and Paul sort of, you know, really, really be, and the shapers too, they were pushing the limits, you know, Mick McShane was, he was, he wanted to create the wildest, crazy screens of all time. And I think it's easy to do something different, but it's really hard to then make it playable. So you have to show some restraint. If I could do tether over again, a little bit of restraint around the greens, a few things to change. And it's a top, you know, 50 in the world golf course. Cause I think it's amazing. And it's on a great site. Same with the castle course, mm-hmm. you know? So I think it's easy to do something different, but how will it be viewed? Long-term, is it a good golf course? You know, that's really the balance as you try to do something that hasn't been done before. But, you know, if you don't show any restraint, then it, then probably going to playability will suffer. You think about Sawgrass. When Sawgrass first opened, everybody hated it. I mean, like the players called it like, you know, goofy golf and you read the quotes from that first players, but once people get used to different, it's not necessarily always that bad. Yeah, I I agree. And like I said, I I think long-term the cast course and tether will be seen as, you know, amazing golf courses because I think they're, they're both, they're both really amazing sites. Um, You, since you think that, the greatest sites were the golden age architects and yeah. today's architect would have, you know, built a better course. In your opinion, what's the greatest course in the world? Probably Pine Valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think Pine Valley is sort of, you know, it's, it's everything that I think great golf is. I think it's, the greens are, you know, amazing. I think it's, it's nice. I feel like it's, fairly wide and and you know pretty generous off the tee which is great i didn't lose the ball you know either time i played it and very challenging into the green so you know the challenge is there you got to be on it you have to be you know you have to be playing good golf um and the setting is fantastic it's that's a that's a good sight yeah it is an amazing sight (laughs) 
You can, you know, you can see what great architects today, like Tom Doak, Tara Eady, what guys like us can do with amazing sites, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, it, it is, uh, I, I think both these courses, Sand Valley and Mammoth Dunes are the same. We get great sites with no constraints and we can, and the Kaisers have let us, you know, let us come out here and lay off wherever we want and make everything else secondary. And, you know, that's what those golden age architects did. They didn't have someone telling them where the clubhouse needed to be and, you know, telling them about a green tree frog that, you know, had to, we had to keep all these trees for environmental reasons. I mean, none of that stuff was happening back then. So what's the biggest challenge when you get a world-class site like Mammoth Dunes? Not disappointing people. That's the biggest challenge. I mean, if, if you don't nail it, uh, you know, there's no excuse, right? You, we have a lot of excuses on other projects where it's other people are cons- or other, you know, circumstances are constraining our um, our creativity, but something like Mammoth Dunes, there is no constraints. There's no one to blame. <laughs> if it's not great, it's David and I's fault. So I think one of the most unique things here is the routing and how it's, you know, you've worked over tough ground that other architects passed on, you know, like from your standpoint, how the process of, of coming up with this routing with David and, and Nick, it, how difficult was that? No, I wasn't very involved in the routing because I was working on other stuff. I think I was in England at the time. Um, so Nick and David were over here together, but you know, Nick, um, who's our other partner, he has a really strong background in landscape architecture. And I know it's a dirty word these days, but in AutoCAD and, you know, using, uh, using the tools that modern architects have at their fingertips to model the ground. And, you know, a lot of other architects looked at our site and no one, no one could really figure it out. And, you know, Nick did some amazing stuff with AutoCAD and modeled the, the, the landscape and we figured out that there was this big giant V Ridge running through this site. And it was, if we modeled the entire holding land holding, which was like a couple thousand acres and that Ridge completely stood out. You can, you, you can use AutoCAD to create, you know, different colors for different elevations. So instantly we had this big giant map with 2000 acres on it. And there's just a giant V Ridge, you know, that was the most prominent feature by far on the whole landscape. And instantly, David and Nick gravitated towards it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were looking for a dramatic site, and we had to find a way through it. And they, those guys with the, you know, with the AutoCAD work that they did, they found a way to get over the ridge in two different places and uh, sort of set up the whole routing. You know, there was only one way to really cross on the north end, one on the south end, and sort of laid itself out from there. What's the one thing that you think you wish that, you know, the regular golfer would know before playing math? Yeah. I don't think I want them to know anything. I want them to just come out and, you know, experience it, walk through the breezeway of the clubhouse out onto that awesome putting green and see, you know, the landscape before them. And my hope is they think like, you know, they feel that it was always a sand barren, that it never was a pine forest and that, you know, it always sort of looked like that and we just laid golf over it. But I, I, you know, I I don't, 
I don't feel that you need to explain it to anybody. Mm-hmm. You don't need to tell them anything. You just let them show up and experience it. What about your job? What about my job? What What would you want somebody to understand more about your job? I guess, you know, probably what every other, you know, associate designer would want and a little recognition, you know, that, that David didn't design it all by himself. You know, there was a team of guys and granted he's the inspiration and he's the whole reason we're here. And, you know, he, uh, he taught me everything I know about golf course design, but you know, we also have, I'm a big part of this, you know, I was here every day and my shape, you know, the shapers that worked for us, um, Ernie Polverari and Luis Varela were out here every day. And, you know, this place is, you know, I, I wish the average person knew that it was a more of a team effort, mm-hmm. you know, but that's, you know, that's, I, I think that goes with everything. It's, it's, I think it's almost, it's almost media's pro- fault because it's way easier to like gravitate towards one person than tell a story of a team, you know? Absolutely. There's a, there's a leader in every team and, you know, and, and, David deserves it, um, you know, but, and, and it, I don't, it doesn't really bother me that much, but it, it's, uh, and David's really well, really good at trying to, you know, say it as it, in the media that it's always a team effort, you know, that it's him and I and Nick and our shapers and the rest of the guys on the crew. But So if you could build, you know, one kind of different style of golf, you know, whether it be a different concept with number of holes or par or what would it be? You know, obviously I think the biggest thing is just time, right? That, that none of us as, as fathers generally have as much time as, as, you know, as our parents did. My dad could go out and golf all day on Saturday and, you know, no big deal. But, you know, as we, as we, Involved as parents, I, I can't go on a Saturday morning and play golf every week, you know, and I don't want to. I'd rather spend the time with my kids. So it, it would really be about trying to do things quicker. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's more of a style of design, you know, that that promotes a faster pace of play. Pace of play is a is a. I hate playing slow golf. I hate it. And if I'm behind a group and it's slow, I, I almost just want to walk off, no matter where I'm playing. That's, I was playing Whistling Straits uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it took us five and a half hours to play. And it, 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 we waited on every tee box. Like, yeah. It was maddening. It made me want to walk off the golf course. You know, I think, I think the – and obviously, you know, the private club – I, you know, idea is probably the only place where this really works, but the Ohupi match play thing, I've heard you talking about that. And I think I heard Gil talking about it on your podcast, but the idea of match play, you know, in the U S is something that isn't fully embraced. And in the UK it is. And I spent a couple of years living in London and playing golf all around the UK and golf over there is much more about a match, you know, a competition between friends. Rarely, do you see a guy just go out and golf by himself? You know, it just doesn't happen. It's, Hey, let's get a game together. You know, let's get a couple guys and we'll go play and we'll play a match. And it's, it promotes fast play, right? Cause you just pick up and people in the U S you know, the U S golfer. And I think a lot of it has to do with the handicap system. Doesn't fully understand that. Mm-hmm. 
So if we could, you know, if we could, and maybe it's just a model, maybe it's not as much about architecture, but trying to do things that promote more match play. Yeah. You know, play quicker, enjoy the competition a little bit. Did you play a lot of alternate shot over there? Um, I didn't. I mean, I knew a lot of guys that did, and I played on several occasions, but, um, and I played a couple, you know, events at my club that are alternate shot, and I love it. And I think it's amazing. That's like one way to really speed up the game at all. Somehow in the U.S., we are fixated on playing our own ball the whole time, all the way to the hole and putting it in and posting a score on our, you know, gin handicap. And it causes five and a half hour rounds. Do you think that's because of the, the PGA Tour? I don't know if it's the tour, but in the U.K., the handicap system is much different, right? You play three competitive matches, I think, and and you get a handicap from your club and that's it. That's your index. That's your, that's your, you know, and then, so for the rest of the year, doesn't, you don't post scores. So if you're playing a match, you just pick up the ball. You know, if, if the guy gets a three and you're sitting there in four, pick your ball up. And our, you know, I don't know if it's the PGA tour or I guess more the USGA, but the way that we, the American system of posting scores for handicap and constantly posting every single one is counterproductive. I, I, the handicap system drives me nuts because like it's posting a score from one day to the next. Like I think it's just stupid because the golf course could be completely different. Like in the conditions, like, if you play in really tough conditions, like you, and you shoot 76, you could play really well and you could shoot 72 the next day in really easy conditions. It, it, that's not necessarily like it's so skewed, flawed in so many ways. The handicap system It's one of my, I think that is a big problem in the game of golf. Like one of, one of like it, like you alluded to pace of play, but also like the, the concept of like why you're out there playing is too. Yeah, and I think that's why we have 1,800, 18 hole, 7,200-yard golf courses, you know, on all of our projects. <laughs> we know that's what our client expects. That's what the golfer expects because that's what, you know, they measure their self against. So, you know, <clears throat> there's a real I, – I, I think it's a real lack of, you know, understanding about the game and the competition side of it, about playing a game between – you know, two, four guys or two guys. And, you know, if we played a competition on a 13 hole, you know, 4,200 yard golf course, you have a great time. Yeah. But if you're out there by yourself and you're trying to test your game against, you know, what you perceive as a modern, you know, modern size golf course, and you got to post your score, all those things are sort of piling up against, you know, pace of play and match play and competition and, all the things that I, that in the UK, you know, really encourages golf. You know, it's a, it, it really opened my eyes living in the UK to see how the culture of golf is so different over there. And, uh, you know, it, it, I wish we could do more Ohupi match plays, you know, match clubs and, and, and really focus on that style of play. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I just like talking about this, like, makes me want to play alternate shot the next time I play, like, in a match. You know, play, I think the idea of four people playing two balls, you know, is so much faster. It's like you could get around and, you know, 
And I know there's some clubs over there that are are strictly for uh, four ball clubs. Right. Yeah, and a lot and a lot of them, or or they'll do it on you know Saturdays or you know always before noon or you know so they'll 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 put they'll they'll have various you know a lot of clubs have pretty strict rules about who plays when. So if you're going to play you know four Americans uh, playing their own ball, then you can only play after two on a Tuesday. You know, but if you're you know two old boys from down the street, you know you you can play in two hours on a Saturday morning. It's amazing because it's like they're just like these guys get it. They can play. They're going to look for their ball for 20 minutes if they hit it into the gorse. What were your uh, favorite courses over there? You know, I spent most of my time, I lived in Surrey, so I played, you know, I really played the Sunningdale and, you know, Walton Heath and St. George's Hill. St. George's Hill is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, I really. I loved playing there. I played there a lot. The client I worked for lived in St. George's Hill, so he, he had me up there quite a bit to play. Um, Swinley Forest, you know, all of those courses. Swinley Forest is absolutely amazing. Um, New Zealand is one that, you know, not a lot of people know about that's really good. And then I played some a lot of the English links too, which are, you know, Royal St. George's is fantastic. Uh, Saunton, I don't, know, I don't know how much time you spent down there, but you know, there's a lot of really good courses around London, an hour drive from London, whether it's, you know, the Surrey courses or, or out to the coast. Yeah, that's what Michael Clayton said, that he of all the golf around the world, he thinks he'd, he'd pick, if he had to pick one, it would be like the the London area. Like yeah. a, and there's just so much good golf right around there and the Heathlands. And, I mean, you talk about important golf, like I think the Heathland courses are probably the most important in of all the golf courses ever built. Cause they were the first that weren't said that said golf is okay. If it's not on the ocean. Sure. And it, you know, and it brought golf to the masses, right. To large population centers. So suddenly there's like 132 golf courses in the County of Surrey mm-hmm. alone, you know, so it sort of, it, it brought golf closer to the golfer. Mm-hmm. So you weren't driving out to the co- you know, to the links and, and uh, you know, so, it was, uh, and, and some of those golf courses are just amazing. If you were designing a municipal course, would anything change in what you did do there versus, say, a golf course like San, uh, Mammoth Dunes? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's, you know, we there's a time and a place that you can build Mammoth Dunes, and it's on a site like this where we have plenty of water and we have plenty of labor to mow the big fairways and that you know we've 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 got the perfect scenario to build a really big golf course and you know most municipal courses obviously aren't like that and i think given that circumstance i wouldn't be looking to build 100 100 yard fairways you know i i think tight and small is okay build a par 67 you know 5,000 yard golf course on a cool piece of land in you know wherever in LA or something, you know, and I, I think, uh, I think short and fast, quick, you know, things that move fast. And I would, and I would do walking only, mm-hmm. you know, because I think golf carts cause a lot of, a lot of issues with pace and play as well. It makes it your job a lot tougher too. Much more difficult. <laughs> yeah. When you're trying to build a course that's walking only like here, for example, you can put it, the, you know, in the back tee right next to the, 
green, right? Or, or, or behind it or, or, you know, somewhere where you're walking off the green and you are walking right onto the next tee box and off you go. So pace of play is really quick. The second you add cart paths, suddenly the cart path needs to be, you know, you don't want it too close to the green, right? Because then your ball might hit it. Bad. So you're, you're, you're moving the cart path far away from the, the green and then you got to, you know, you cross the cart path. So if you're walking, suddenly the next tee, you know, pretty much 50, 60, 70 yards away, mm-hmm. the cart paths cause a ton of problems with pace of play. People always say, well, I'm going to go play in a cart. I'll play super fast. It's like, I've played just as fast as you. I just won't sit and wait as long as you. I'll hit my ball and walk to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think walking municipal golf courses should try harder to have walking, you know, walking only. What's crazy is a lot of them don't even have a walking right. Yeah. Here you go. You get a cart with your tea time. Well, I don't want a cart. I rolled up to Southern Pines in the Pinehurst area. Mm-hmm. It's a cool little core. That talk about a good piece of ground. That's a really good piece of ground. And there was nobody there because of bad weather, except the one old lady working in the shop. And uh, I walked in, and she's like, oh, that'll be $56 or something like that. And she's like, and I don't know if I have a cart key. <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't want a cart. I want to walk. And she goes, well, I, and she like looked at me perplexed because like all of a sudden, like it was like, she didn't even have like, she didn't know what the walking rate was. And that to me was like, it, it almost offended me because it was a, it's an old school golf course where it's a beautiful walk because the tee is right. Like, just like you talk about green tea, green tea, green tea, like, and it, it, it's a hilly course, but so it was, it was, it's a tough walk, but you know, very, very walkable. I think so many courses, a tough walk to me is when the distance between the green and the tea are far apart because I get disengaged. Yeah. I'm instantly thinking about something else or if I'm walking a hilly golf course, but the, the hilly part is between the tee and the green. It's fun. I, I rarely, rarely, you know, do you feel disengaged? You might feel a little tired, but you're anxious to get to your ball because you're in the game, right? And the second you put out, you want to get back in the game as quick as you can. I think that's a hit on it is like the anticipate walking up the hill when you're walking up to see what your next shot is, what your lie is, you know, what, how close you are to a flag, like what your putt looks like that all of a sudden takes the hill out of the equation because you're working off of excitement and adrenaline. And I think that's one of the beauties of golf is that anticipation. I think carts take away from that too. Completely. Cause suddenly you're driving over to the, you know, you miss half the golf course because you're on the cart path the whole time. And then you're, you know, circling around the back of the green and then, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, it certainly makes our job much more difficult. Mm-hmm. So if you could get, get rid of any American, uh, golf habit outside, we'll say outside of carts, what would it be? It would be not playing match play, you know, we play stroke play, mm-hmm. everyone putting out their own ball. That's the biggest, that's the worst habit I think we have, and it causes all kinds of problems. It's a domino effect. So, you know, definitely pace of play. Obviously, the pace of play is the biggest thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's pretty. You sound like a broken record. I yeah, I sound start to feel like I'm a broken record when I do these uh, over and over again. Um, so let's let's get into overrated, underrated. Okay. All right, template holes. Highly overrated. What about template holes within your own architecture group? Oh, uh, we don't. I don't have them. We don't. We don't. Uh, you know, we've. I know of, you know, a Baritz and we built some, but I don't even know if we call them that when we're building them. Maybe we call them that after, but we don't have holes. Hey, remember the third hole, you know, on that course, let's build that again. That, that never happens because the land is so different and, you know, you really, we really try to respond to the land. And if you're always, if you have a good site and you not let the land do the talking, then, you know, you don't need a template hole, Right. You, you, you're letting the, the greens there. Well, there's never been a green built there before like that where it's the site's weak. And maybe that's a, you know, maybe that's a scenario where template holes are have some merit is on a weak site. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a flat site. Yeah. They're tried and true. I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, core principles of golf architecture are ex- exceptionally simple, you know, like what builds a good golf course. And I think the template holes were great. I think people have a, the wrong theory on the template holes is like, they were just principles, like not this, just because one Baritz could be completely different than another. And Absolutely. one, one road hole can be completely different than another road hole. But the, the theory is a very simple and very strong, you know, hey, play close to this hazard, gain the advantage, play safe. And, you know, in, a se- in an essence, a lot of holes are just a copy of that strategy. Sure. And I get it. But I've also been around other architects who cannot think about anything but, you know, this is going to be my Alps hole. And then this is going to be, you know, the fourth at Pine Valley. And then this one is going to be like the fifth hole at, you know, and, and that's all they only refer to a golf hole that they're going to build referring to some other course, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's almost like they're, you know, they're a cover band. Yeah. It's like, you know, no original work. Like, uh, you know, then that's how I feel about template holes is, is there someone else's idea on a certain site? And yeah, they were repeated maybe by, you know, CV McDonald and then other people, but it's, it's someone else's idea. So it's like a cover band you know? or, or a wedding band or a wedding band. I, <laughs> wedding bands. I went and uh, so when we got, when my wife and I got married, we went and, you know, saw the wedding bands at weddings and, so I got the like pleasure of going to a uh, wedding and I was like sober and I never had realized how bad wedding <laughs> bands are <laughs> until that moment. But then I realized, I, I thought about it. I was like, well, if they were really good, they wouldn't be a wedding band. They'd be a real band. So, I, I mean, I think there's merit. I think there's, there's merit to certain people doing the template whole, like, Bill Core came on the podcast and talked about how Pete Dye changed golf architecture twice. And after Harbor Town, everybody copied that and it was never the same. And after Sawgrass, everybody copied that 
but they were missing the dye sauce yeah. behind it. And I think that you know what that is secret sauce is. He was on site. Yeah, that he has the same. He had, he was the original guy with the sauce mm-hmm. being on site. I I think there could be an argument made that Pete Dye is like the most important architect in in golf history, outside of maybe like old Tom Morris. It's you know his uh, his focus and I, and. You know, I, I haven't been around him, so I'm only speaking from the stories I've heard from other guys. But he was on site all the time. He wasn't afraid to spend hundreds of days during construction on a project and get his hands dirty. And that, you know, that is, I think, you know, there's so many architects who are as talented as, you know, the, the, the group I've spoken about over and over. But they just don't. They just, they, for whatever reason, they just aren't prepared to be there as much as they should be. And their products kind of suffers from that. And then, I mean, the idea of not being on site a lot is like, I mean, like, it's kind of crazy that it even was like a real thing. Like, yeah. you know, like, And it still is, and it probably will be for a long time where, you know, there's still going to be a lot of guys drawing grading plans on in their, you know, in their office and handing them off to art uh, contractors. Well, it goes against like running a business. Because, like, when you're trying to run a business, you're always trying to scale. Like, how can we do things more efficiently, faster, and take on more clients? But I think with architecture, you're in an industry where it's more art-based. Like, where you have to, you know, like, you have to do the work. Like, you can't look at it as, like, we're going to get as efficient so we can take on as many jobs as possible. Like, there's, I think, a clear... I just don't think it's a, you can't have a McDonald's version of golf course architects. Uh, yeah, absolutely not. Not, not successfully, <laughs> you know, not maybe in 2005 when they were building 500 golf courses a year in the U S you know, that, that model might've worked at least as a, from a business model, but it wasn't producing top 100 golf courses in the world, you know? So you've mentioned the rankings a number of times, like, do you feel as an as you know an architect that that is how your work like how you judge your work looking back? No, I guess you know when I say top one hundred, I mean probably my own top one hundred. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily mean Joe Passoff's top one hundred in you know Golf Magazine or you know Golf Digests or anyone else's. It, it does make you feel good when you look at you know when you build something like Campbell Sands and it you know it's super high in the rankings right when it is that makes you feel good of course and when they're not yeah and that's the funny thing i think we all love them when we're in them but the second you build a golf course like tether was a good example i think it's amazing but it's not in there so then it pisses me off so you know you're you're the the rankings are by nature you know they're completely subjective right like Sure, there's, you could probably name, you know, you could probably pick 50 golf courses that are amazing and not even rank them one or two, you know, top my top 50 and just here's my 50 top golf courses. And I think that would be probably a much better way to do it, you know, in groupings uh, rather than one, two, you know, because so, it's so easy to look at 73 and say 73 is way better than 52, you know, the 52 ranked one. Well, that's, that's it. I, I, I'm in the same boat. Like, 
the idea of putting a number next to like there's like a clear tears you know and it's like would you rather play like and then i start to think about it, it's like you know what's better this golf course or this golf course it's like well they're both great and it's like i you know like which one would i rather play on a day well i don't know it depends on what I'm looking for. Imagine if someone did that, if someone else did that with a different form of art. Like, what are your top, what's the number one sculpture in the world? I mean, it, that makes no sense, right? It's, it's art. It's, per, it's from your point of view. It's how you played that day. It's how the weather was. It's how nice the kid at the golf shop was. It's how good your caddy was. You know, so ranking a golf course, I would say, is like ranking sculptures. It's, it's you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really mean that much. Unless, of course, you know, one of our courses is ranked highly, and then it's super important. If you were the number one sculptor. <laughs> yeah. but, then, of course, I'd want to rank. It's, uh, what would you, what do you think should go into evaluating a golf course? You know, I... What should go or what does go? What should go, you know, is you should be able to show up and as if you're gonna, if you're, if you are going to do, you know, be a ranker, if you're saying, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rank the golf course architecturally, then it, you, you need to do it in a bubble. You know, you need to not think about the guy at the pro shop or the traffic on the way there or, you know, the fact that it was cold that day or that your caddy was the, you know, not the best. Because well, I, what drives me the most nuts is how you played. <laughs> how you played. If I play good, it's great. The course is awesome. If I can't make a putt, that's you know, it's no good. The greens are horrible, and it's you know, it, it, it's subjective, you know. And I don't think that you can. A lot of people in our in in the you know modern day architects you know i walked it i love to walk the golf course and you know i really got a feel for it i never played it but i walked it that always sort of i, I always think that's a cop-out you know you didn't play it but you're going to evaluate it even though you never swung a golf club on it you walked around it you didn't fully understand the golf course but you're going to tell me that you have an opinion on it because you walked around i, I find that really difficult and that's a that's a big thing in today's, you know, young kids. Well, I went out and walked it. Well, that, okay, maybe that's great if you couldn't play it, but play the golf course and evaluate it. I think I understand the golf course more when I walk it than when I play it. Well, you might. But can you give an opinion on, you know, architecturally how it played? I like to, so I walk with like a wedge, a seven iron, a putter. So, so you're playing golf. I don't think you have to play it for a score. Mm-hmm. I think you have to hit shots on it and you have to, you know, feel the grass and you have to, you know, see what happens when a ball is bounding towards a green. I think like around the greens is where yeah. ha- hitting shots and, and, but like from tee to green, I pretty much know where I'm going to hit it and I can stand on a tee and look at this and, and look at a shot and be like, oh, this is, this is a good shot, yeah. you know? I, but I think like to your point, like to fully grasp it, you need to play. I also don't really think you can judge a golf course one time around. I, I agree. Like, I, mean, I know if it's bad. I know if I play it once and I, you know, like I can usually say, yeah, I'm not ever coming back here. <laughs> if it's, you know, a good golf course, like something like Pine Valley, you know, you're in awe of it the first time you play it, you know, and you need to play it again. Cypress kind of the same thing. The old course sort of the same thing, you know, sometimes when, when 
the personality of the golf course is so big. I really think you're kind of jaded, you know, and you have to almost play it again to really understand it. That's, it's funny because like I, Mammoth is a good example of like I've played it now three times, but I've walked it probably five or six other times. And I've understood it more and more and I've appreciated aspects of it more and more every time I've played it. Mm-hmm. And like, so it's funny because like my opinion after one round would have been completely different than it is now yeah. after playing it a bunch of times. Like I just understand the golf course more. Like, you know, like it, it's a weird golf course in the sense like every hole I feel like out there, every hole I should be like pushing the envelope trying to make birdie. Versus so many holes I've been conditioned in my life to, to like, you know, like play conservative, like play in, and you no, know, like don't just go after it all round long. Yeah. Like, which is, I, but there are shots out there where like today I was like, wow, I really got to be careful here. But at the same time, it's a different challenge in the sense of like, pars are always very attainable for a good player. It's like, you know, like you can, if you try and make a par, you're never going to get yourself really in trouble. Like you're, you can make 18 pars. It's where you get in trouble is when you push for the birdie. And that's what David and I's real philosophy was here. Let's forget about defend par. Let's forget mm-hmm. about it. Let's, let's give par away. Mm-hmm. Let's defend birdie. You know, let's really try to defend a good player from getting a birdie because that's really what we want. If you try to defend par, then the average guy, he's going to bogey or double bogey, right? And that's, like, why I think the brilliant – like, I, I honestly think that, like, and uh, like a 15 handicaps are universally going to just, like, absolutely love this place because it's going to be the first golf course that just doesn't beat them over their head all yeah. around long, you know? And a lot like Gamble Sands, I think the good players, like you said, a good player is going to think that they can, you know, score their very best score they've ever scored at Mammoth Dudes mm-hmm. because they, they, they see that it's attainable. Yeah. But once you start pressing on the gas, you know, and, and you start thinking, okay, I'm going to get, you know, I got a birdie there and then I can get another birdie. And then, you know, you, it, it's not, you know, no one's going to go out there and get 10 birdies, right? Making so, birdies is hard on yeah. any golf course. Anywhere, right? If it was a flat field, 300 <laughs> yards long, birdies are still hard. They're still tough. <laughs> it's like you still have to hit exceptional yeah. shots. It's I, I, yeah, like I tried to drive the 10th green, the short par four today, mm-hmm. and I like lost the ball. Yeah. And that was like the killer on my route. It's like I would have shot a really good score if I hadn't lost ball. Yeah, <laughs> but like that's where I push the gas. There's some punishment. There's some edges, and I think that is if if I if I could bottle up uh, architecture and you know I, what I think really good architecture is, I think it's bringing the good player, the high handicap or the the low handicap player and the high handicap player together as close as you can get them. So you know, trying to make it as easy. The, the, again, the handicap system is set up for the good player in the U.S., right? Because it's all about your your potential. And my potential as an eight handicap is probably, you know, an 80. My potential is that. And I, you know, whereas normally I'll probably get a 90. Where, and a good player, if you're a single-digit handicap, a one handicap, you're going to shoot around par most of the time. Well, so this is the interesting thing. It's like for the American system of stroke play, yeah. 
it's very advantageous if you're playing net stroke play. I think it's very advantageous to be a low handicap. But if you take the system and we play match play, yeah, the low, the real low handicaps at a huge disadvantage because like their propensity to not make big numbers is that's like your advantage. It's like you know, like fifteen is going to make a seven or an eight, but in match play you only lose one. Yeah, that's why match play is a better system. It is. I agree, hundred percent. I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I think I'm an eight handicap right now, but I could get, you know, a snowman or a birdie on any single hole, right? And you're probably you're you're never going to get a snowman, but it's just as hard for you to birdie it as it for me. So, match play is way better. And yeah. Stroke play, you'll probably beat me every time, even net, because there's going to be two or three snowmen. You know, if I play to my very best potential, then we're even. Mm-hmm. Because you're going to pay your potential almost every day. It's a, it's a you know, it's, it's flawed for the stroke play. So any type of architecture that can bring those two players together more, so that it's more evenly matched, I think it's you know, I think that's a winner. That's that's, that's a great architecture in match play. Yeah, that's the, that's the recipe because match play brings people closer. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I don't know, it's it's funny. It's eh, it's the architecture bringing the thing of bringing everybody closer, I think is like the nail on the head Yeah, because like it, you don't like, that's the way I feel when I play some of these golf courses that I like to rip on. It's like, it's so boring for me. And like you watch a tour, like it's just thoughtless. And then you like my dad's at 17 handicap. And he playing it, it's just it's miserable for me to play with him because of how hard it is for him. And I'm spending my whole day looking for golf balls or watching him drop golf balls. Like and that is I mean, so is it possible to build a really good golf course without width? I think the strategy becomes much more subtle. Right, the greens are smaller, so the, the strategy is much subtler. And I think you know, the narrower it gets, the the more the strategy is apparent to a really good golfer, but maybe less apparent to you know a higher handicap golfer because they're just trying to hit the fairway. They're not picking you know which side or I need to come in from here. Well, the fairway is only you know eighteen yards wide. I'm just trying to not just trying to make the grass, you know. So I think. It they can it can be a really great golf course, but the strat you know the strategy is much more subtle. So so I don't think everyone gets to enjoy a high handicapper rarely gets to enjoy the the you know the strategy of of a narrow golf course. Mm-hmm. All right, Casey, thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure, Andy. Yeah, we're we'll be excited to see your guys' next work. I know you got couple overseas projects but hopefully soon in uh, the Americas another one yeah and hopefully they're all in sand yeah <laughs> all right thanks. thanks you've been listening to the fried egg podcast we do the digging for you